Let's bow in prayer and then we'll study the Word of God. Lord, thank you for this uh, chapter of your Word that just encourages us to see the courage of Paul in the face of the hatred that of the Jews feel for him, so much so that they want him dead, and yet his courage is boundless, Lord, as he uh, stands up for the gospel and stands up for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, help us to be as bold as him. Uh, and Paul, help, uh, help us to, Lord, help us to uh, reach out to those around us, both the down and outers and the up and outers, for they all need Jesus as Savior. Father, thank you. Guide us in this study, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we read in chapter 24 and verse 1, five days later, uh, now this is five days after Paul was uh, surreptitiously brought to Caesarea under guard, under Roman guard, to preserve his life, for there were Jews who had uh, taken an oath to kill him and not to eat or drink until they did. And so five days after he is brought to Caesarea uh, is where chapter 24 begins. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tortillus and brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Now, Tertullus was a prosecuting attorney of sorts. The, the word translated lawyer there is literally orator, and I think you're going to see some of his oratory in his opening remarks in uh, verses 2 through 4. Uh, but he, we don't know if he was a Roman. Some believe he was a Roman lawyer. Others believe that he was a Hellenistic Jew. Uh, at any rate, he is to present the Jews' case against Paul. And he begins with what writers call fawning flattery and call another writer called almost nauseating flattery. You'll see what they mean as I read verses 2 through 4. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everyone, uh, everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude, but in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Now, what is nauseating about this introduction is the fact that it is so untrue. Uh, it is said of Felix that he was his reign was marked by brutality, his uh, brutal put-downs of insurrections and anarchy. Felix had frequent disp displays of ferocity, cruelty, and greed. He was a brutal person, he was a corrupt person, he was a licentious person, and so you can see that Tertullus is just trying to grease the skids as he presents his case against Paul. I shared with you last week that the Roman historian Tacitus said this about Felix, that he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. And indeed, he was a freed slave who became governor of Judea, the Roman governor of Judea. Greed and cruelty 
marked his reign. It was not peaceful. It was corrupt. It was not reforming. It was a corrupt uh, leadership on his part. Well, in verses 5 to 8, Tertullus lays out three charges against Paul. And what I want you to see as we look at these charges in verses 5 through 8, that what Tertullus is trying to present is a capital case against Paul. The Jews want him dead. They want to silence his voice. They want to silence him as a great uh, 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 preacher of the Word of God. And so they present what they believe are capital charges against Paul. Uh, Verses 5 to 8, we see those charges. There are three of them. The first is in verse 5, and uh, the first part of verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. They are accusing him, first of all, of sedition. They're accusing him of sedition, of political subversion. That would have been a capital offense because the Romans were very, very serious about what is called the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. Uh, Everywhere that Rome went, they tried to bring peace. And if you disturbed the peace, you were in great trouble with Rome. And so uh, what they are accusing him here of is that he is disturbing the Pax or Pax Romana, that that, uh, uh, he is disturbing the peace and therefore he's submitting the subverting rather the political system and that was a capital offense and they are charging Paul with this capital offense that he was a threat to the peace worldwide not just locally not just in Judea but he was a threat to the peace of Rome worldwide and you can see the political overtones in that. You can see the political overtones in that as they seek to bring a capital case against Paul. The second charge against Paul is found in the latter part of verse 5. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Basically, what the word sect there has the idea of a faction or a party, or in English, we would say an heretical group. An heretical group. That's the idea behind this. Now, what they are saying is that they tried to show that Christianity should be divorced from Judaism. Now, what Paul will argue is that Christianity is an outgrowth of the Old Testament. Christianity and the truths about Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an outgrowth of what the Old Testament taught. It's an outgrowth, outgrowth in a sense, of Judaism, but they are trying to sever Christianity from Judaism. Now, why is that? Well, that was important because Judaism in that day was a religio licita, religio recita, and that meant, uh, or licita, that meant it was a legal religion Rome would not tolerate new religions. Rome would not tolerate new religions. Therefore, what they are trying to say is, as Judaism is a legal religion, 
And as long as Christianity was considered a part uh, or an outgrowth of Judaism, Christianity was safe as a, a legal religion. But what Tertullus is trying to do and what the Jews are trying to do is to separate Christianity from Judaism so that Christianity would lose the protection of being a legal religion. And so uh, that's what the charge is about. It's a charge trying to show that Christianity is divorced from Judaism, that Christianity is some kind of a heresy. And Paul will answer that charge in an effective way as we go on in our passage this morning. What one writer said is what Tertullus was trying to do, what the Jews were trying to do, was to portray Christianity as cultic and bizarre. They were trying to portray Christianity as cultic and bizarre so that it could be deemed an illegal religion and could be stopped. The third charge is found in verse 6, the first part of verse 6, and even tried to desecrate the temple so that we seized him. Now, what they're trying to do is say that Paul committed sacrilege. The first charge was sedition against the government. The second charge against Paul is that Christianity is heresy. The third charge now against Paul is that he tried, he attempted to desecrate the temple. Now, what is important about them, uh, that, is that that was also a what? A capital offense. That was also a capital offense. So they're accusing uh, him of desecrating the temple. Now, you remember the background to that charge. He was erroneously charged with bringing a Gentile into the Jewish section of the temple, which was a capital offense indeed, but Paul wasn't guilty of it. Paul never did that. So that, those are the three charges, sedition and heresy and sacrilege. Now, interestingly, we see, uh, we, we, we read in verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all the charges we are bringing against him. And the Jews joined in the accusation asserting that these things were true. That is, they want Paul's blood so much that they're willing to perjure themselves. They want Paul's life. They want to stop the truth about the gospel. They want to stop the truth of Jesus Christ so much that they are willing to perjure themselves in this court. Well, Paul's answer to them comes in verses 10 through 21. And I want you to notice that as we see Paul's response, it's not so much a defense as it is a witness. It's not so much a defense as it is a witness as he shares what he believes, as he shares the truth of the gospel, as he shares the truth about Jesus Christ, as he shares the resurrection from the dead. And that is so important to see here, that Paul, in the midst of this august body, this leader of this Roman uh, governor, in the midst of this Roman governor, Paul stands strong for the truth. And rather than trying 
to free himself, what he tries to do is share the gospel of Jesus Christ, so much so that he made Felix nervous. I love that. So much so that he made Felix nervous. Well, we see Paul's answers. In verse 10 is his introduction. Now, his introduction is quite different, much shorter, and much more truthful about Felix than Tertullus' introduction was. We read in verse 10, When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Now, basically what he is stating is the truth. Uh, Felix had been there about in, the, in that region for about 10 years. Felix understood the issues. He had a lot of contact with the Jewish nation. And in fact, he was married to a Jewish woman. Now, we'll learn a little more about that in just a moment. But uh, what Paul is saying is true. Felix had been there a while. He had contact with the Jews. He understood Jewish issues. And so therefore, when Paul gives his introduction, he is telling the truth. Well, in verses 11 to 21, Paul answers the charges point by point. And what is striking is Paul is literally once again on trial for his life. His life is on the line. And yet what we see from Paul is a couple of things. Number one, we see how calm he is. How calm he is. How, how uh, we might be stirred up and, and, and worried about how are we going to answer these charges and are we going to be effective in answering these charges. Paul seems totally under control, totally calm. And it's also interesting to see here that Paul's main message is about the gospel. It's not even about his freedom. It's not even about his freedom. His main issue here, his main message is that he wants to present the gospel. The Jews have already turned from Jesus Christ. They have turned from their Messiah. They have sealed their faith. But Paul is before the Roman governor of Judea and his wife uh, later on. And his interest is in sharing the gospel with them. So we see here in his defense, his defense against the charge of sedition and uh, political subversion is found in verses 11 to 13. What does he say? You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. So the first answer that Paul has to the charge of sedition is that I haven't been in Jerusalem long enough to gather a following and instigate a riot. He said, I haven't been there long enough. I haven't been there long enough to gain a following. I haven't been there long enough to instigate a riot. So he says here, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago. So no, no more than 12 days ago, Paul got to Jerusalem. And since the time he was in Jerusalem, he 
He uh, agreed to pay the vows of the, of the several Jewish Christians who took vows. Uh, the whole thing in the temple happened. The spiriting him from Jerusalem to Caesarea happened. And he's now been in Caesarea for five days. My goodness, he said, I haven't had time to stir up the trouble that you're talking about. And so that's how he answers the first charge, the charge of sedition, the charge of political subversion. He was there to worship. He was not there to instigate, uh, to instigate political agitation. They could not cite one instance where he instigated a riot in the city. The Jews could not cite one instance where he instigated a riot in the city. The answer to the charge of heresy, the second charge they bring against him, that Christianity is an uh, illegal religion, uh, a cult, is found in verses 14 to 16. We read in verse 14, However, I admit that the, I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men. Paul says, I admit, I do worship God. I admit, I do worship the God of Israel. I worship in the full conformity with the Old Testament Scripture. What Paul is pointing out here is Christianity is not a sect, it's not a heresy, it's not a cult. His hope, Paul's hope, is in the resurrection, the same as many in Israel. And the official dogma of some others in Israel, Christianity is an outgrowth of the Old Testament. Christianity is the fulfillment of Israel's faith. The fulfillment of Israel's faith. And so that is what Paul tries to communicate to them. He admits to believing in God. He admits to believing the Scripture. He admits to uh, preaching salvation. He admits to teaching about future resurrection. Now, there are some interesting things that we find here in his argument in verses 14 to 16, and I need to quickly uh, go over them. The first is this of worship. I want you to notice something. What's important here is that Paul connects worship with belief in the Word of God. Paul connects worship with belief in the Word of God. He said to them, I worship the God of our fathers, and literally in Greek it is believing everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. Paul says, I worship believing. I worship believing. Now, it's interesting, but for us today, we don't often connect worship with the study of the Word of God. We connect worship with what? Usually uh, a liturgy, uh, music. If we, say, if we say this is the worship part of the service, you will automatically say, I know what they're going to do. They're going to lead us in songs. But biblically speaking, there are as many times that the Scripture talks about connecting worship with the Word of God, connecting worship with the study of God, as it does connecting worship with any kind of 
uh, song or any kind of liturgy or any kind of method or any kind of uh, emotional reaction to the Word of God. There's a great book called The Ultimate Priority by John MacArthur, and it's a, a book that about worship, and he talks about this truth about worship when he says this, Jesus said that we are to worship in truth as well as in spirit, and thus he linked worship inseparably to truth. Worship is not an emotional exercise with God words that induce certain feelings. Worship is a response built upon truth. Psalm 45 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. Clearly, MacArthur says, truth is prerequisite to acceptable worship. Later, MacArthur says, that is why expository preaching and the systematic teaching of the Word of God are so important. Some preachers seem to specialize in sermons that are only marginally biblical, but, but that move the congregation and make them laugh and cry with clever stories and anecdotes. They might be interesting, fun, entertaining, exciting, and impressive sermons, but they do not help the people worship God. The purpose of the ministry is not to create an emotional experience. The calling of every preacher is to teach about God, and out of that foundation of knowledge comes worship. Paul is connecting worship and the Word. Worship and the Word. In a later part, MacArthur says, Word and worship belong indissolubly to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God. The exposition of the Word, then, is essential to meaningful worship in the assembly of the saints. And the insight gained into God's Word in the worship service will both deepen the quality of individual worship throughout the week and stimulate the saints' desire to study the Scripture. Well, so much more could be said about worship, but I want you to notice Paul connects worship with the study of the Word of God. Uh, the second thing we see here is Paul talks about uh, not just the resurrection, but he talks about resurrections. Notice that he says, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets and I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Uh, one writer said to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the book of Acts. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or good news which the Christians brought. And yet, it's so seldom that you and I, as believers in Christ, when we share our faith with those around us, we focus, rightly so, on the cross. We focus on what Jesus did. We focus on uh, His death on the cross and our, taking our place, dying for our sin. But we kind of stop there. Whereas all throughout the book of Acts, that was the starting point. Then they went from there on to talk about the resurrection because, you see, death is the great leveler of all people, isn't it? 
is the great leveler of all people. Well, what happens after death? What happens after death? What happens to those who die between the time they die and the time they are resurrected? Uh, what happens to, to the resurrections? How many resurrections are there? Let's, let's try to answer, and we, we've got a lot to cover here in two minutes. So we're going to cover as much as we can uh, about the resurrection. Now I want you to note, there's, uh, and, and you can find this, I don't have time to turn to these passages, but Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, I will read Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 for you. It says this, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29 says a similar thing. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 to 15 talks about the resurrection of the unsaved dead. There's not, what we need to understand is there's not just one general uh, resurrection, but rather there are two resurrections. There are two, and we'll see those in just a moment. There's a resurrection of the just that happens in several stages, and there's a resurrection of the unjust. So, the first question is, between death of the body and resurrection, what happens to believers? What happens to unbelievers? Well, the Scripture teaches that the believers go immediately to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Be going immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Absent from the body means to have died. When the immaterial part of us leaves the material part of us and goes, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, it goes immediately to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, as well as Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. You see, the, the moment a believer dies, their spirit goes to be with Jesus Christ. Their body is laid in the ground or perhaps cremated. Uh, in some way, it deteriorates. But their spirit goes immediately and consciously into the presence of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as soul sleep, as the cults wrongly teach. So therefore, uh, when th those who are righteous when they die, their spirit goes immediately to be with Christ. Their body awaits the resurrection being called uh, out of the grave or the sea or wherever it is their body has deteriorated and called into the presence of God. What about the unbeliever? The unbeliever who passed, who dies, their spirit goes immediately into conscious torment, into conscious torment. Uh, again, I don't have time to look these passages up, but look at on your own study, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. That, by the way, I do not believe is a parable. Some people consider it a parable. If it is, it is the only parable with a named person in it. All other parables are there is a farmer. It doesn't say there is a farmer Joe. There is a farmer. There is, there is uh, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, so therefore, in Luke, Lazarus and the rich man are, are mentioned. 
And because of that, I believe that it is not a parable, but is rather an actual, uh, an actual account of what happened when this rich man who was not a believer, who was not in relationship with God because of believing in God's provision for sin, he, his spirit went immediately into torment, awaiting time that his body would be reunited with his spirit and they would be cast into the, uh, judged at the great white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire. So that's what happens between the death of the body and resurrection. But there are two resurrections. The first is the resurrection of the just. And that happens in several steps. That happens in several steps. The first is that of the rapture and resurrection of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The rapture and resurrection of the church. The second part of the resurrection of the just is the resurrection of tribulation saints. That is, those who have died during the tribulation, they will be resurrected before the millennium, according to Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. Now, there's some debate about that, but uh, that's what most believe, is that tribulation saints, those who died during the tribulation, will be raised before the millennium. In the, res in the second part of the resurrection of the just. The third part of the resurrection of the just is the resurrection of Old Testament saints. The resurrection of Old Testament saints. Now, again, there's some disagreement about when that will occur. Some believe that Old Testament saints will be raised when the church saints are raised in the rapture slash resurrection of 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, others believe that Old Testament saints are resurrected at the second coming. Um, there is some debate about that, but it's going to be one of those two times. Uh, finally, that's the resurrection of the just happens in three stages. There's the resurrection then of the unjust, according to that we, we call the great white throne judgment, and it is found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. That is when the unjust, those who have rejected God's provision, those who have rejected God's provision for sin, those who have rejected the Messiah, uh, they, they will be called before God. They will be resurrected, called before God. They will be judged. First of all, the fact that they're there is the fact that they did not avail themselves of God's provision for sin. But God will judge them and will show from their lives that they never trusted God's provision for sin. And they will be cast into the lake of fire, where, which is the home of Satan and the home of death. Well, Paul says, I believe in the resurrection. And in fact, even some Jews like the Sadducees or the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. And so Paul says Christianity is not some kind of cult. It's not some kind of heresy, but is very much uh, an outgrowth of the Old Testament. Well, Paul then answers the third charge in verses 17 to 21, the charge of sacrilege. 
And then he has an interesting conversation with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. But we'll have to wait till next week. Let's pray. Lord, uh, it's not just an academic exercise as we study the truth of the resurrection in your word. Lives hang in the balance, Lord. We thank you for those in our midst who know Jesus as Savior and are going to uh, be in your presence when they leave this world and are going to be in your presence after the resurrection. We thank you for that. We thank you for the joy that that means. But Lord, our joy is tempered by the fact that we know so many people who will not be in the resurrection of the just, but by their own choice will be in the resurrection of the unjust. Help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses, I pray in Jesus' name.